Our topic today out of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, a very powerful chapter, very important chapter, the ram, the goat, and the little horn. Okay, so let's uh, jump right in and with a review of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Really can't understand chapter 8 uh, unless you uh, have understood 2 and 7, and really for the most part all the chapters of Daniel build up to this, even though the, the story chapters, the lion's den and all those kind of things, they're all prophetic in a sense as well. And so they all build to this climax, and this is a very important uh, chapter that bridges us to then the climax, chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so again, it's all building towards that, and so this week is uh, very interesting. Um, if you're watching this online, then I encourage you to go to shalomadventure.com and first watch Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Actually, Daniel chapter 7 is in two parts, so that'd be three videos to prepare you for Daniel chapter 8. Okay, so Daniel chapter 2 was a statue with a gold head, a chest of silver, a waist of bronze, a legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay. So four metals with five sections to it, and then a sixth section, a stone comes and destroys the entire statue and becomes an everlasting kingdom. Okay, then in Daniel 7, we have four beasts. We have a lion with eagle's wings. We have a bear that's lifted up on one side. We have a leopard with four heads and four wings. And we have a strange beast that Daniel can't even describe. And out of this beast has uh, ten, it has iron teeth and it has ten horns. And then among the ten horns, a little horn comes up and three other of the original ten get knocked out as that little horn comes up into power. Okay, so we have four animals, four beasts, and five segments. And then a sixth segment, that beast gets destroyed and judgment, is sit, judgment sits and, and God judges. Uh, so same type of thing, same type of scenario. Parallel, each one of those chapters parallels each other. And we're going to see Daniel 8 parallels as well. So we've learned some principles that all of these chapters in Daniel, all these prophetic chapters in Daniel, as well as Revelation, go from the time of the prophet to the end of time. That is so key. That is so key. No stopping halfway along and getting off on some tangent. You just follow the Daniel 2 blueprint, which takes us from Babylon, from Daniel's time, all the way to the end of time. And the same with Revelation. It goes from John's time to the end of time, over and over and over again. Different chapters, different segments. It's not a chronological book, Revelation. It goes over, just like Daniel, over and over again, the same timeline with repeating and expanding each time. We're gonna see that in Daniel 8 today. It repeats this and then it expands to take us to the next level within it. But it stays with that same blueprint, stays with that same pattern from Daniel's day to the end of time, just like Daniel chapter two. So that's an important principle. Another important principle is that even though it's described as beasts and metals and various different things, it's not describing individuals. As we look at these different powers, or systems, or organizations, or nations. They are uh, just a general description. They might have been in power for hundreds of years. It's not talking about individual people within that nation. Lost, saved, that has nothing to do with it. It's just describing the powers that are at hand, that principle number three, powers at hand that directly affect 
God's people and the spreading of the Bible. That's where the prophecies focus. It's not that other nations are not important or anything like that, but the Bible and these prophecies are just focusing on where the primarily, where God's people primarily are and where they are directly being impacted, in particular in relation to the Word of God, because that's what God's focus is. And so the, back to principle number two, these four beasts or these different beasts, however they're described in the Bible, again, it's not that they're beastly people. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we believe, is saved. He gave his heart to the Lord and, uh, and walked with him and fully repented. And so, you know, we believe he's saved, but uh, he's described as, you know, that kingdom, that's uh, the first kingdom there in Daniel's time. Uh, so they're saved, lost people, good people. It's not, that's not uh, the issue. It's just general description of the power in general for, that might have lasted for hundreds of years. Okay, so that's a little overview of the Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. So now we're going to look at Daniel 8, which has this ram, this goat, and this little horn. And it starts off with this ram and this goat battling it out. So it's a pretty exciting battle. That's not the whole focus of the chapter. It just sets the stage for where God's taking us, but that's where it begins. So there's only three elements, there were four elements in 7 and four elements in Daniel 2. But here it just has three, the ram, the goat, and the little horn, because Babylon is already on its way out. It's almost gone, and so the prophecy doesn't need to mention them. So again, the principle, it goes from the time of the prophet, the next kingdom coming on the scene after Babylon, and so Babylon's not mentioned, and then going till the end of time. Okay, so Babylon's not even mentioned in this chapter, because again, they're basically on their way out. So Daniel chapter 8, verse 3. I saw a ram which had two high horns. One was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. No animal could withstand him. He did according to his will, and he became great. Okay, so already we have some hints here about who this uh, kingdom represents, or which kingdom this animal represents. Uh, it has two high horns, but one horn is higher than the other. Does that sound familiar to anything we read in Daniel chapter 7? Certainly, the bear was lifted up on one side. So here we have a direct parallel. The ram has one horn that is higher than the other. And the horn, the second, the horn that became higher rose up second. And that's how it was with the Medo-Persians. First, it was the, it's a dual kingdom. The Medes and the Persians joined together. But the media side of it was more powerful initially, but then the Persian side rose up higher, more prominent than the media side eventually. And so just as Daniel prophesied in advance, God showed him in advance exactly what this kingdom was like. And there again, we have our parallel. So moving right along, the silver kingdom, the, the, the golden Daniel 2, and the lion with eagle's wings represented Babylon, the silver, and the uh, two, uh, Daniel 2, and the bear lifted up on one side with three uh, ribs in its mouth was Medo-Persia, and it takes us right to the ram, lifted up on one side as Medo-Persia. And in chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8, verse 20, it says, the two-horned ram that you saw are the kings of Media and Persia. 
So that's what we've been seeing all along, and here it just laid it out for us. He just tells us plainly. It didn't tell us that plainly in Daniel 2 or Daniel chapter 7, but here it says plainly. So it's kind of like uh, doing division to check your multiplication, doing it backwards, you know, or, or doing subtraction to check your, your addition and just double check your, your math both ways. And so here it's just reconfirming that we've seen Babylon was taken over by Medo-Persia. We saw that in Daniel chapter 5, I think it is, where Medo-Persia comes in, handwriting on the wall takes over Babylon, so that's the next kingdom, the silver kingdom, or the bear lifted up on one side, or the ram with the horn lifted up on one side. So here it just tells us very plainly. So we know we're on track, we know we've been using right um, method of interpretation, and it's just a good confirmation. Okay, verse 5, Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. Suddenly a male goat came from across the, from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. Okay, so we have some clues about this power, this goat, this male goat. It comes from the west, where Medo-Persia came from the east and attacked Babylon. This power comes from the west, and it comes across the surface of the earth without touching the ground. What do we call something that is going across the surface of the earth? What is it doing if it's going across the surface of the earth without touching the ground? What is it doing? What do, what do, what do we call that? Yeah, it's flying. It's flying across the earth, right? Whether it's a drone or a rocket or an airplane or a bird, it's not touching the ground. He's moving across the face of the earth. And so here's a male goat who's flying across the surface of the earth. He's moving. He's moving fast. He's flying. He's not touching the ground. He's taking off, right? Well, does that sound like anything out of Daniel chapter 7 that we see as a parallel? Well, it certainly should, because in Daniel chapter 7, the third beast was a leopard, which is a fast animal, and it has four wings. Right? What are wings used for? Flying, right. So they're flying, so, so, and it has four wings, so it's flying fast, and it's a fast leopard, so he's really flying fast, and here's this goat, he's moving so fast, he's not even touching the ground, he's flying also, right? So we see the parallels, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, all moving together, all paralleling, reviewing, and expanding. Okay, the goat had a conspicuous horn on his forehead. Alright, so he notes this conspicuous, a conspicuous horn. There's something about this animal. He's got this conspicuous horn that's there on its forehead. Alright, that's going to be a clue. That's going to be key to, uh, to describing this power. So he's flying, and he's got this notable conspicuous horn there. Verse 6, Daniel chapter 8, verse 6, he came up to the two-horned ram and charged at him with furious force. Battle taking place. Verse 7, I saw him reach the ram at, and rage at him. He struck the ram and broke its two horns, and the ram was powerless to withstand him. Okay, so this goat comes and just demolishes this ram, that ram that's described that no animal could withstand him, but now all of a sudden out of the west comes this goat that's just flying at him with a conspicuous horn and just nails him, breaks both its horns, and decimates him. Verse 8, then the he-goat grew very great. All right, that's a clue there too. He grew very great. I think that's very interesting. He says he grew very great. All right, so there's this goat. He tramples this Ram, and he grows very great. He has this conspicuous horn, right? Well, who's the, the, this kingdom that 
took over Medo-Persia, that rammed Medo-Persia, that, that charged at him and had a conspicuous horn that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. It was the Greeks and this conspicuous horn. Who is this conspicuous horn? Who is this first leader of, uh, of the Greeks that, that conquered in this way and conquered very quickly? Who is it? Alexander? Alexander what do we call him? Alexander the, Alexander the Great. And what did it say? This conspicuous horn grew very great. <laughs> I don't know which came from, well, Daniel mentioned it first, right? So I don't know uh, if that's how come they named Alexander the Great because of that, or just God just knew ahead of time and said, this guy's going to be called great. I'm going to refer to him as a conspicuous horn that grew very great. I think that's neat. And so again, very clear description, describes Alexander. He conquered very, very quickly, like flying across the earth. Uh, by the time he's 33 years old, he conquers a good portion of, of the surrounding area there and comes from the west, Greece comes from the west, and attacked the Medo-Persians and conquered them. Again, very quickly. And then uh, it said that he, he got a fever and he, he took alcohol and drunk himself to death. Died in his own vomit or something like that. So, so yes, at a very young age, 33, some interesting parallels and contrast with Yeshua. Alexander the Great conquers the world but can't conquer self, and Yeshua conquered self, thus he rules the universe. Also about 33 years of age. So very good description. And then it says in verse 8, Daniel chapter 8, but at the peak of his power, his big horn was broken. There he is conquering, he still has the rest of his life to conquer more, but he's at the peak of his power, he's become very great, he's become Alexander the Great, and at the peak of his power, he gets broken, he dies. That's written hundreds of years in advance. Isn't that amazing? The accuracy of God's word, seeing and describing these events and these powers in such detail, so much detail that liberal Bible interpreters who, I don't know why they try to interpret the Bible, they don't believe in it, but they don't believe that Daniel was written by Daniel. They believe it was written hundreds of years later by somebody because it's so accurate. How can he see those things? How can he describe them so well? Well, because God sees all things, and God knows all things, and God is real, and the Bible is real. And just as God knew Alexander the Great, he knows you. And personally, I think you and me are more important to God than Alexander the Great ever was. And he knows your needs, and he knows your past, and he knows the future that he has planned for you. So trust in him. And these Greek powers, just like Medo-Persia, ruled over uh, Jerusalem. And we have the, the story of uh, Queen Esther during Medo-Persia. And then during the Greeks, we have uh, them ruling over Israel again. Because again, all these powers, not that Alexander the Great is that important to God, but it's power that ruled over God's people and directly affected God's word. Not so much Alexander the Great, but the Greek kingdom as a whole. And that's the keys. Verse 21 in Daniel chapter 8 says, the he-goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn on his forehead is that first king. So again, it, it just laid it out there for us. It said exactly what we've seen it means and interpret it, because again, the Bible's very consistent with itself. So uh, the uh, he-goat represents Medo-Persia, just like the leopard with four heads and four wings, and the brass in the waste of Daniel chapter 2. 
Okay, so we have our kingdoms being listed and we're moving across history and prophecy. Still verse 8, Daniel chapter 8. In its place, in the place of the conspicuous horn that got broken, in its place, four notable horns sprouted toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, so we have two fours, four horns going to the four winds. Conspicuous horn breaks, and four horns come up in its place, four notable horns to the four winds of heaven. Do we see a parallel there with Daniel chapter 7? We saw him flying like a leopard with wings. We see another parallel, four notable horns. What is on the head of that leopard? Four heads, right? So you have a four-headed leopard, and you have four horns on the, the goat, right? And so again, a parallel, uh, just re-again confirming, it's the same power, matching all the chapters together. Okay, verse 22. The four that stood up in its place are four kingdoms that shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So the Greece breaks up into four divisions, but never has the same power as it did when it was under the conspicuous horn, as it did under Alexander the Great. And these are the picture here of the four divisions of the Roman Empire. So, so we see where it says Cassandra, that's Greece. And so Greece attacked Medo-Persia. All the rest of the areas with Medo-Persia attacked Medo-Persia from the west, just like the Bible said, and took over all of Medo-Persia, which was over uh, what's there. It says uh, 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 Ptolemy on the, uh, down by Egypt in the south, uh, Seleucus there to the east, and then this other one, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, up in the north. And that's uh, the areas of today of uh, like Turkey and Israel and Iran and Jordan and then Egypt in the south. So it conquered from the west and conquered all those areas that were ruled over by Medo-Persia. And interesting, those three divisions were why that bear had three ribs in its mouth. Because the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon and uh, Egypt and the area in the north. I forget what it was called back then. But uh, it's today around Turkey area. So the Greeks come in, Alexander the Great conquers all that from the west, and then when he dies, uh, it said that while he was dying, they asked him, well, who's going to reign next? And he said, the strongest. And so the four generals, they battled it out until they ended up just dividing up the land. Now, you'll notice here between the Ptolemy in the south of Egypt area and the Seleucus uh, training over Israel, but you notice where that line is between those two kingdoms. Where does that line take place? Where is that line showing up? Right there. Right between the two is right where Israel is. And so Israel was the border between those two parts of the Greek kingdom. And these two powers battled it out back and forth, all to gain some more land, all to gain uh, more authority over the other one. And so Israel became the rope in the middle of their tug of war and constantly were in the midst of their battles. It was ground zero for their battles, was, was the front line for their battles. And that's how it ended up. And so Israel is right in the middle between these two powers. And that's going to be key as we continue another week into Daniel 10, 11, and 12. We're going to see the same scenario, Israel right in the middle. And that's not such a great place to be. And like it or not, that's where you and I are. We are believers in the Messiah. We are right in the middle in this tug of war between God and Satan. 
And they're both pulling for us and pulling against us and trying to pull us apart. And Yeshua's pulling and he's going to win as we tip the scale in his side by choosing to follow him and to resist the devil. And we're on God's side. So, okay, so here's this battle taking place between those two kingdoms. So again, we see it matches with Greece, four horns, four heads of the beast in the leopard beast in Daniel chapter 7. Okay, back to Daniel 8, verse 8. And in its place, four notable horns sprouted to the four winds of heaven. So again, two fours, four horns to four winds. This is very key here. So much takes place right here in this verse. Four horns, four winds. Verse 9, and out of one of them. Out of one of them. Who's the them? Who's the them? In its place, four notable horns sprouted towards the four winds of heaven, and out of one of them. How we interpret it. That's why this is such a key verse here. Because misinterpreting this and applying it to the wrong them dramatically changes the interpretation of not only this prophecy, but Daniel 9, 10, 11, 12, and all of Revelation. This is the place. This is the fork in the road where many people go off on the wrong road and then stay on that wrong road forever all the way through Revelation. This is so key in understanding this. In its place, four notable horns sprouted towards the four winds of heaven and out of one of them. Now, if we were talking English, the them would apply to the four winds because that's the one that's close, it's closest related to. Uh, uh, I have a friend who's an English, whatever, scholar or whatever, uh, editor, and, and, uh, and she told me what it, how it worked out in English. She used some fancy terms that I forget now. <laughs> but there's a, there's a term for it that the them goes to the, 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 the pro, closest pronoun. And, and so the winds, now it's the same in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's laid out right here the same way. Almost exactly, the English translation is almost exactly, sometimes it's not, sometimes the English, the Hebrew and the English is a little differently worded, uh, but here it's basically the same, almost word for word, and it matches up here again, and so in the Hebrew as well, the them is closest to the four winds. Out of one of the winds, not out of one of the horns. And we're gonna see why that's so crucial. And going off on the wrong one gets us a totally, totally different tangent that breaks all the principles and gets us lost in, in the wilderness. Uh, but getting on the right path, the correct path, everything stays in harmony together. Two, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, 10, 11, 12, and all of Revelation stays all in harmony with the Daniel 2 blueprint. Okay, so out of one of them, out of one of the winds. Out of one of them, this is still Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn. Put that in the back of your head, little horn. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Okay, so now we're going to this next stage, this next portion of this prophecy. And so again, to understand this next portion, which again will affect all our future understandings of Daniel and Revelation. We need to understand who this little horn power is and where it came from. 
And so it describes him as a little horn out of one of them. And again, it attacks from the south, it goes, it attacks toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Okay, so those are some hints we have already here. And so let's take a look at this. So if it's how it, it's commonly interpreted as coming out of one of the horns, and they say which horn it came out of, they interpret it as the Seleucus kingdom. This one here that's ruling over today's uh, Jordan and Iran and, and all this area here, uh, as well as over Israel. And so they say uh, after Alexander the Great and then a couple hundred years later, uh, king, uh, king after king after king is reigning over that area, and we come up with Antiochus Epiphany. Does that name sound familiar? A Greek king, Antiochus Epiphany, we know that somewhere? That cloud, the, the, the cobwebs clean up there, well, where's Antiochus Epiphany in history? Especially in our history, where does it relate? The Hanukkah story. That's right, the Hanukkah story. Antiochus Epiphany came, and he attacks... Egypt in the south. Now it said to the south and to the east. Well, I don't know any time that Antiochus Epiphany attacked towards the east. He comes through the glorious land, the holy land, because that was part of his territory, and he attacked to the south, but I don't remember anywhere in history him attacking towards the east. So already he's not meeting some of the Bible criteria. Well, what happened historically is Antiochus Epiphany uh, attacked to the south and he uh, killed a lot of Jewish people and he desecrated the temple and a lot of horrible things, but he doesn't already meet the Bible criteria. But it says that he attacked this little horn power, attacks to the south, to the east, and to the glorious land. Now, if it's coming them from the west, so a power coming from the west and attacking east to these two kingdoms up here, to the glorious land would be the Seleucus, and to the south would be Ptolemy. So out of one of the winds, out of the four winds, out of the western wind, coming, attacking east, south, and glorious land. Not towards, not one of the horns. Okay, in Daniel chapter 7, again for our parallels, Daniel chapter 7, verse 8 said, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. Where did we hear that term, little horn? Told you to put that in the back of your head, little horn? Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. Little horn in Daniel chapter 8, little horn in Daniel chapter 7. I mean, is that a parallel? I think that's even clearer than a bear lifted up on one side and a, and, a, and, a, and a he goat, or a ram rather, with a horn that's higher on one side. I think that's even a clearer parallel than four heads and four horns in seven and in eight. Here it uses the same exact words. Little horn, little horn. How can we miss it? We shouldn't miss it. This is a parallel. This is the next power. See, by putting it as Antioch Epiphanes, it's not a new power. It's still the Greek kingdom. He was still part of the Greek kingdom. It's still then part of that second thing. And then the prophecy just ends with Greece. It never goes to the next stage. It never takes us to the end of time. It gets stuck in Greece. 
And that's not where the prophecy goes. The prophecy has to go to the next stage. And we saw in Daniel chapter 2, and we saw in Daniel chapter 7, there's the next stage where this iron comes, or this, then the little, or also known as a little horn. Daniel 2 described as iron. Daniel 7 described as little horn. Daniel 8 described as little horn. We shouldn't be able to miss that. That should be clear as day. It's out of one of the winds, not out of one of the horns. So what was this little horn? What was this iron? We saw the iron in Daniel chapter 2. Like the iron toothed beast in Daniel chapter 7 that had a little horn come out of it. The little horn out of Daniel chapter 8 represented Rome in both its stages. Four metals, five stages, because the iron goes down to the feet and the toes. Daniel 7, four beasts, five stages, because the iron teethed beast then has another stage where a little horn comes out among the ten horns and knocks out three, or three horns get knocked out while it's coming up. So it's the next stage. Same with Daniel chapter 8. We had two animals, then we have a next stage, and this little horn represents both its stages, just like that fourth beast, just like that fourth metal, had two stages to it. This little horn has two stages to it, Daniel chapter 8. But it's still the next stage after the goat, after Greece. And what was the next kingdom that took over Greece? Was Rome. Where did Rome attack Greece from? It attacked from the west, and it went to the east, and to the glorious land, and to the south. That's exactly what Rome did. And so this represents Rome, and then the next step, stage of still Rome, it's pagan form, and then it's Christianized form. So pagan Rome, and then Christian Rome, or Roman Christianity, uh, however you want to word it or term it, but it's both its stages, taking us again to the next stage in the chapter. We're not done yet. There's a lot more in Daniel 8 that reveals it. But Daniel chapter 7, continuing our parallel, verse 21, the same horn, this little horn, which came up out of that beast, which was identified as Rome, that same power comes up out of that. It's not another horn from somewhere else in Daniel chapter 7. It comes up out of that beast, out of that Roman power, among the ten horns, what Rome divided up into, the next stage, so then Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Did Rome do that? Certainly Rome did that. Chapter 8, verse 10. We're going to parallel these two chapters now, 7 and 8. This little horn power. Daniel 8, little horn power, verse 10. This little horn, it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Again, persecuting God's people. Daniel 7, verse 25. And he shall speak words against the Most High. And so Rome, boasting in both its stages, boasting of its power, in relation to God, Daniel chapter 8, verse 11, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts. And by him the daily was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. He cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and he prospered. Now, does that sound like Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, maybe in some ways he did persecute Jews. But did he prosper? In all this, he did all this, and he prospered. He cast the sanctuary to the ground. Well, he defiled the sanctuary. He didn't cast it to the ground. Did he prosper? 
he comes, Antiochus Epiphany, he attacks Egypt, and then Egypt calls on Rome and says, Rome, help us. Rome sends a message to Antiochus Epiphany, get out of Egypt or I'm coming after you. And he runs like a dog with a tail between his legs, and he runs away and takes his army with him. And so on his way back home, where does he have to pass through to get back home? He has to pass through Israel. He's passing through Israel. He's upset. He didn't get to attack Egypt. He didn't get to conquer Egypt. Rome kicked him out. And so he's all upset. So what does he do? He kicks the cat. Who's the cat? Israel. He slaughters a bunch of Jews and, uh, and he's not happy and he leaves. So he's not prospering. He's not conquering Egypt. He's not pushing Rome around. Rome's pushing him around. He's not becoming very great. He's not prospering. And then after he kills a bunch of Jews, what happens? What's the Hanukkah story? The Maccabees, a bunch of farmers, attack his army, even though he's got elephants and swords and shields. They come at him with their farm instruments, and they win. They beat him. They beat him to a pulp. They conquer the temple, they liberate the temple, they dedicate the temple, and we have the Hanukkah story. A bunch of ragtag Jews, farmers, beating the big Greek army, the Seleucus army. Is that prospering? Does it sound like he's prospering? Beaten by a bunch of farmers? No, he didn't prosper. He didn't become terrific. He wasn't so mighty. He was pushed around. So he doesn't fit the description. He's not attacking to the east. He's not, he's not fitting the description at all. But that's where a lot of Bible commentators go off on their tangent and never make it back home. They go on that wrong road and they stay on that wrong road for the rest of Daniel and the rest of Revelation. So key that we understand everything staying in order with Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and then continuing on that way. Now, does this fit Rome? Did Rome exalt himself as high as the Prince of Hosts? Caesar called himself God and he had to worship Caesar. And uh, that's in pagan Rome and in Christianized Rome too, exalts itself uh, that it has the power to change times and laws, that it has the authority to change even the precepts of Messiah, that it's God's representative here on earth, and many other uh, things that are so blasphemy, being able to forgive sins and all the kinds of things. In Rome, uh, persecuted the Prince of Hosts in, in, in crucifying the Messiah, and by him the daily was taken away. What's the daily that's referred to there? What happened on a daily basis in the Jewish economy? What happened daily in Israel? The daily sacrifices. Yeah, the morning and evening sacrifice. What was the purpose of the sacrifices? For forgiveness of sins, right. So for forgiveness of sins, so that's the purpose. So the daily is cast down. The daily sacrifices are taken away. Did Rome do that? Yeah, sure, they destroyed the temple. Did Christianize Rome do away with the the Messiah's sacrifice? Yeah, by saying you can go to a person and ask forgiveness of sins, confess your sins to this person, and then you just go and you count some beads or you do some penance and you receive uh, forgiveness. You receive uh, the sins removed. That's not biblical. We need the blood of the Messiah. We need the blood of the Lamb to remove the sins. Just taking away the daily intercession of the Messiah for us. And then it continued and said, and his sanctuary was cast down. Did pagan Rome cast down 
God's sanctuary? Sure. Not one stone left upon another. We have the remains of it there. You can go to Jerusalem today and see the stones of the temple cast down as Yeshua predicted. As Daniel predicted, the sanctuary was cast down, cast over the, the temple mountain, down to the ground, hundreds of feet down below it. Cast down. Very interesting terminology that it says here. We're cast down. Thrown down. Exactly what happened to the stones. Did Christianize Rome cast down God's sanctuary? Well, which sanctuary? If pagan Rome already cast down the sanctuary, then what sanctuary has Christianized Rome, or Roman Christianity, cast to the ground? Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say about another sanctuary. There's several sanctuaries in the Bible. There's the one that God had Moses build. There's the one that Solomon built. There's the one that Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilt. There's the one that Herod remodeled. Yeshua referred to himself as the temple. He refers to us as temples. He refers to us together united with him as the temple of God. But then there's another one. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, it says, the temple of God was open in heaven. Where? In heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And in Hebrews chapter 4, Verse 14, therefore, we have a great Kohen Gadol who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God. So he starts off Hebrews chapter 4 with verse 14 saying, therefore, therefore, everything I've said thus far, verses chapters 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3 and 4 and a half, therefore, after all he just said in writing Hebrews, therefore, we have a great Kohen Gadol who is in the heavens. He's ministering there in the heavens as our high priest, as our Kohen Gadol in the temple of heaven. It continues on in Hebrews chapter 8. The main point is this. After everything he said thus far, now he's up to chapter 8, and the main point of the first seven chapters, the main point is we have a Kohen Gadol in heaven. Same like he just said in verse four, chapter 4. We have this main point, we have a Kohen Gadol in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary. The true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. What tabernacle is he talking about? Where is this tabernacle? In heaven. It says it very clearly. He's ministering in heaven, in a true sanctuary, in a true tabernacle, God's tabernacle. Not made by Moses, not made by Solomon, not made by Ezra and Nehemiah, not made by... Uh, Herod remodeling it, but made by God himself in the heavenly temple. Chapter 9, verse 11, still in Hebrews. Messiah entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Verse 23, it was necessary for the things in the heavens to be cleansed with better sacrifices. Verse 24, the Messiah did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. So in heaven itself, there is a true tabernacle, not made with hands, but God made. And that truth, that understanding of the heavenly temple, is what's been cast down by Christianized Rome. You almost never hear a heavenly temple being talked about. You almost never hear God's intercession in the heavenly temple being talked about. We very rarely understand, hear a teaching on what is Messiah doing right now as our Kohen Gadol. 
What is his role there in the heavenly temple? We hear about, oh, theories of a third temple being built here on earth. But what about the heavenly temple? That's where the focus goes. That's what's been cast down. That's what's being ignored. Basically, the whole book of Hebrews is all about this. The main point of the whole book of Hebrews is that we have a Kohen Gadol who's in the heavenly tabernacle, who's ministering with a better sacrifice. And, and there in verse 23 again, it says, and the things in the heaven, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary, would be cleansed with better sacrifices. That is so key. Put that in the back of your head. We're going to come back to that here in just a moment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, is saying that the Messiah is cleansing a heavenly tabernacle. Again, we're going to come back to that. So crucial. Okay, so back to Daniel chapter 7. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. So twice in Daniel 7, talks about this power, this Rome power, this beast power, persecuting the saints. And again, these beasts and all like this, not representing individuals, not talking about people, talking about systems, right? Organizations over thousands of years, hundreds of years sometimes, sometimes thousands of years, Rome in both its forms, not getting individual people. Christianized Rome, right? Or anything, or pagan Rome. Again, there were the pagan Romans that were believers. Pagan Romans that were believers, sure. We have Roman centurions, right? Uh, uh, King Agrippa comes very close to believing. We have others who did become believers, right? So it's not saying that every individual under that system is bad or lost. There'll be people under all these systems that'll be saved. Nebuchadnezzar, maybe Cyrus, some Romans, others, under all these systems. Right? So one of the principles was that these beast powers that represent these things, it's not representing them as good or bad, it's just the systems as a whole, not individuals, that take place. Did I mention this before? Sure I did. I'm going to mention it again and again and again. It's such an important principle. that we don't judge anyone of any of these kingdoms, that we don't come down on the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, or the Rome in any of its stages. It's just the systems that rule over where God's people are and where the Bible is primarily being written. That's the key. That's so key for not getting, again, judgmental and looking down and, and accusing any individuals and even the system as a whole. It's just the system. It's just going through the stages and fulfilling the Bible prophecies. All right, so it thinks to change God's times and God's laws. We looked at that when we did Daniel chapter 7, but persecutes the saints. Back to Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. And he shall have fierce features and understand uh, sinister schemes his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he shall destroy fearfully and prosper and thrive, and he shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. He shall cause deceit to prosper. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many, and he shall even rise against the prince of princes. Now again, does that sound like Antioch Epiphanes? Did he become mighty and powerful and destroy fearfully? No. He couldn't even beat up a bunch of farmers, Jewish farmers, or Egypt, and Rome kicked them out. So he doesn't, it doesn't fit his description at all. He doesn't uh, rise even against the Prince of Princes. Who's the Prince of Princes? The Messiah, the Prince of Peace. He came along after Antioch Epiphanes onto this earth in human form. 
So it's not, but did Rome, did Rome come up against the Prince of Princes? Did Rome come against the Messiah? Certainly did. Crucified him in its pagan form. Does it attack him in its Christian form by, by saying we have the power to forgive sins? It certainly does. Taking down the daily, ignoring his work in the heavenly sanctuary, replacing the heavenly sanctuary with an earthly sanctuary, calling their ministers priests, having labors, cast down the host, where they, they call a little wafer, the host, they put it in an ark, they have candles, menorahs, the whole thing is designed as a substitute for God's sanctuary. Ignoring the heavenly sanctuary and making a sanctuary here on earth as a replacement for the heavenly sanctuary. So attacking the Prince of Princes, ignoring his daily intercession, ignoring the need of his blood, certainly casts him down and rises against it, saying we have the authority to change his precepts infallibility and other such teachings. Again, not individuals, can be saved anywhere within the system, the highest place or any place in it, but it's a system as a whole that has false teachings that dramatically uh, rise against the truth of the Prince of Princes. Thinking the change is times and his laws, his laws regarding time, and many other such things. Daniel chapter seven, verse 25, but then this little horn power, the court will sit and his dominion will be taken away to be destroyed and abolished for all time. So just like Daniel chapter two, the statue gets destroyed with a rock. Daniel chapter seven comes to its climax in God's judgment. The court will sit, that's so key. Put that in the back of your head. The court will sit and his dominion is taken away and he'll be demolished for all time. All right, so it's going to come to an end. Daniel chapter 8. But he, this little horn, again, little horn, little horn, Daniel 8, but he, the little horn, shall be broken without human means. How did that rock come out and destroy that statue in Daniel chapter 2? Without human hands. So a parallel there. The ending is the destruction of, this, of the kingdoms of this world where God's doing it, not with human means, but God's own power breaks the little horn breaks the powers of this earth, breaks the kingdoms of this earth, breaks the, the false teachings and apostasy on this earth. Not us, not humans, not judging. God doing it. God coming in. God laying it out. God will break it. So again, it matches. It's a parallel all the way through to the end of time. Now, what is unique about these three stages or three uh, animals or identifications, four stages in Daniel chapter 8, especially in comparison with Daniel chapter 7. We have a ram, we have a goat, and we have a horn. Ram, a goat, and a horn. How is that different than the animals? Let's think about the, the, the goat and the ram first. How is that different than a lion, a leopard, a bear, and a terrible beast with iron teeth that's devouring and eating things? trampling things. How's that different? What's different between the two groupings? Good. One's clean and unclean, right? So you got the unclean in Daniel chapter uh, 7, all unclean animals. In Daniel chapter 8, they're clean animals, biblically clean. And where in particular are these biblically clean animals, these three things mentioned specifically in the Bible? 
A ram, a goat, and a horn. Where's that in the Bible? Where's that all come together in the Bible? On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On Yom Kippur, in, Daniel, uh, in Leviticus chapter 16, it mentions a ram, mentions a goat, actually two goats. Sacrifice a ram, then there's two goats. One is a goat for the Lord that gets sacrificed, and there's a goat that's for Azazel that gets cast out into the wilderness. And then on the end of Yom Kippur, the shofar is blown, the last trump is sounded. Yom Kippur. That's this is the ultimate Yom Kippur terminology taking place. It's taking us to the end of time. It's getting to a deeper level. So it's, it's, it's reviewed Daniel 2, it's reviewed Daniel 7, and now it's expanding our view and getting into the heavenly sanctuary. The Yom Kippur, the ultimate Yom Kippur, with the animals in description and in its wording. So we had in the temple, right? So the heavenly temple. Chapter 8, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? All right, so he hears this as part of the vision. He hears this. How long is this all going to take place? And these things happening. There's daily sacrifices being uh, taken away and the transgression of desolation. Now, Yeshua mentions this. Yeshua says, when you see the transgression of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then flee to the mountains. Don't go, if you're on the rooftop, don't go into the house. If you're out in the field, don't go back to the house. Don't go back for your coat. Go, flee when you see the abomination of desolation, the transgression of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Now, by him saying that, when you see, what tense is that? When you see. That's future tense. Now, if this little horn that does this transgression of desolation was Antioch Epiphanes, was that future or past as far as Yeshua? He was past. He was before Yeshua. So for Yeshua to say, when you see, saying this desolation, this abomination of desolation, this little horn power, it's present future of Yeshua's time, not past. Again, it doesn't meet Antioch's epiphany at all. And yet that's where people go. Where they'll say Antioch Epiphanes in one stage and then he symbolizes the last day power. But it still doesn't match. Still doesn't, it's not Antioch Epiphany. It's not Greece. It doesn't get stuck in Greece. It's not out of one of the horns. It's out of one of the winds. Out of the west. Comes and attacks. It's Rome. In both its forms. So now this voice says, how long will all this continue? How long will the desolation, transgression of desolation? And the believers in Yeshua's day who understood what Yeshua said in the transgression of desolation, when they saw Rome come in to destroy the temple in 70 AD, they fled for the hills. They understood that as a transgression of desolation. Rome bringing its banners, bringing its um, gods with it in their, in their troops, in their legions, and they fled to the mountains and were spared because Yeshua warned them. And also then in the second stage of Rome as well, which will be in the future, we'll get to that. Not tonight. And the giving of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. How long? Chapter 8, verse 14. 
He said to me for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Where do we see that word cleansed before? I told you to put that in the back of your head. Where do we see the word cleansed? In Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, or rather in, in, in Hebrews, that it would, uh, the heavenly sanctuary would be cleansed, that the Messiah is in the heavenly sanctuary cleansing it by a greater sacrifice. So here you're talking about a sanctuary to be cleansed. Which sanctuary is Daniel talking about that needs to be cleansed? Parallels with Hebrews chapter uh, 9, I think it was Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, I think it was, that the heavenly things need to be cleansed by a better sacrifice, the Messiah's sacrifice. So he's taking us, Daniel's taking us all the way to the end of time, all the way to Yeshua's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary, that the sanctuary shall be cleansed. It'll be 2,300 days. When is that? Well, we'll find that another week. We'll get into that in another week. Verse 16, then I heard a man's voice, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Right, so Gabriel, is sent, as angels Gabriel is sent to Daniel and commanded, make the man understand the vision. Now what part of the vision doesn't Daniel understand? Did he not understand that the ram was Medo-Persia? No, he certainly understood that. Verse 20 told us that. Did he not understand that the, that the goat represented Greece? No, he understood that. Daniel chapter 8 tells us the, Greek, the, 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 the goat is Greece. So he understood those parts. That's not the focus of the chapter. All of that was just to lead us so that we know where we're at in last day events. Understand, son of man, the vision, the last part, the cleansing of the temple, the little horn power will take us to the time of the end. Make him understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Does Antioch Epiphanes last to the time of the end? Does Greece last to the time of the end? Does the Seleucus part of Greece last to the time of the end? No. But the prophecy takes us from the time of Daniel to the time of the end, the last days. Just like Daniel 7, just like Daniel 2. So important. I sound like a, a little thing, but it's so important because of what road you're going to go on at the fork. And you go on the wrong road, you won't get to the end of understanding of Revelation. Going the right way, we'll understand the rest of Daniel and we'll understand the rest of Revelation. It refers to the time of the end, just like all the other prophecies. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and mornings. What's evening and mornings? The daily. And the evenings and mornings, on 2,300 days. The vision of the evening mornings, that portion, refers to many days in the future. Verse 27, I fainted and was sick for days. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Daniel is overwhelmed. He can't understand it. He's hoping that the 70 years are almost up. Babylon's almost gone. Medo-Persia is coming into power. We're going to be able to go back to Jerusalem. And what is this? You're telling me 2,300 days, way into the future, to the time of the end? I'm not understanding this. And he's saying, understand, Gabriel, make him understand. He's not understanding. Make him understand. And he's being told, I can't take this. And Daniel faints. He's overwhelmed. 
He wants to go back to Jerusalem. He wants the temple to be rebuilt. He needs the sacrifices. The Messiah has to come. And here this vision is not making sense to him. He's not understanding. How can it go to the time of the end? When is the temple going to be cleansed? When is our temple going to be rebuilt? What's going to happen here? And he's overwhelmed as he's there in Babylon. And he faints. But God commissioned Gabriel to make him understand. And here he finally wakes up from, Daniel wakes up from his fainting spell after several days, he was sick, and he says, I was astonished, but no one understood it. No one understood that portion of the vision. But God commissioned Gabriel to make him understand it. So God's going to make him understand it. When? In Daniel chapter 9. And that we will do together another week. So again, Daniel 8 leads right into Daniel 9. Misunderstanding Daniel 8 will cause a misunderstanding in Daniel 9 which most groups go off on. Some don't, and historically, they hadn't. Today, there's been a change that's taken place. Historically, this was understood, just as we laid out it here today. Only fairly recent history that the majority have gone off on this wrong tangent. That was brought in by the Roman power, by Rome in its Christian form, that brought in this other view. All your Protestant reformers understood Daniel 8, as Daniel 7, as Daniel 2, just like it was laid out here. All of them. All your early Protestant reformers. Why were they called Protestants? They were protesting. What were they protesting? They were protesting Roman Christianity. They were protesting it, so then Roman Christianity came up with another theory. Oh, Antioch Epiphanes. And eventually, over years and years and years, eventually, it sifted through the majority of Christianity today and take him off on a tangent. Before that, all the Protestant reformers understood it just like this. And now they've gone off on this wrong tangent. They didn't understand this, so they misunderstand Daniel 9, then Daniel 10, 11, 12, and then Revelation, good portion of it. But understanding this, like the Protestant reformers, and continuing with that consistent traditional history, continuing with the simple principles of Daniel 2, and applying it all throughout will get us to God's right course and a proper understanding of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, the ultimate young Kippur. And that's what Daniel chapter 9 will take us into. Understanding the ultimate Passover and the ultimate young Kippur. And so stay tuned for that on another week. In uh, the meantime, again, if you missed any of the others, Daniel chapter 2, 7, or any other Daniels, uh, Feel free to go to shalomadventure.com and, uh, and check it out there. Let's have a prayer together. As we are in the midst of the storm, as we are in the midst of these last days, as we're coming down, Daniel's getting more and more specific. Down, we're in the cleansing of the sanctuary. We're getting ready for the ultimate Yom Kippur, the ultimate end time, the ultimate judge. The court will be seated. God's judgment day. The shofar will be sounded. We want to have our hearts and lives ready. The purpose of Daniel is to show us where we're at and we're living in these last days. We need to get ready, we need to be ready, and we need to get other people ready. And so as we pray together, if you're not ready, if your heart is not right with God, I invite you in a moment as we pray to, re to surrender your life to the Lord. Be right with Him. Secondly, if, if you want to stay ready, want to recommit your life to the Lord. 
Ask him to use you, to give you insight, to give you faithfulness to his word. Then let's pray together and recommit your life to the Lord. Thirdly, if you're not getting other people ready, then in a moment when we pray, ask for God to pour out his spirit upon you, to give you the unction to share his truth, to share his love, to share his goodness with, with others. Fourth, if your own mind and heart, you're symbolically casting God's daily down to the ground, you're casting God's sanctuary down to the ground, you're not receiving God's forgiveness, you're not receiving God's love, you're doing works or other means to try and gain forgiveness, or you're just passing on and just ignoring the past mistakes, and you're not coming to the Messiah and receiving his daily cleansing, not receiving his daily forgiveness, not receiving his daily unction of his Holy Spirit to give you power and victory in your life. As we pray, let us ask God to Forgive us for our human means and our human devisings and to surrender all to him and to find our help in him. Not exalting ourselves, but exalting him and letting him do his work in our hearts and lives. If any of those areas apply to you or maybe some other area that's applying to you right now, you're needing God's help, you're needing God's grace, you're needing God's love. He sees the end from the beginning. He saw all these things for Daniel. He certainly knows your life. He certainly knows your needs. He certainly knows your troubles, your sickness, your financial struggles, your insecurities, your fears, your social situation. God loves you. And he's taking care of God's people down through the ages. He will take care of you. Make sure your hearts and lives are cleansed by his blood. That's all that matters. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we're thankful for your word, amazing word, amazing accuracy, laying it out for us, describing Medo-Persia, describing Greece, describing, describing our day, taking us down through the ages. Thank you, Lord, for describing us. Thank you for knowing us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for ministering for us. Thank you for being our Kohen Gadol right now in the heavenly sanctuary, ministering your blood in our behalf. Lord, we claim that for your salvation in our lives, and your redemption and your victory. Work in us and through us, and use us in leading other people to you. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.